Thanks, Nathan. So do have the passage uh, open that we've just read. And as we look at this passage tonight, we're going to focus on the Lord Jesus Christ in two distinct ways. Who he is and what he sees. You see, first there are two questions, we've just read them, asked by those who are trying to trap and to test the Lord Jesus. Now he sees the hearts of those men and their motives. And then there's a section, verses 35 to 37, Nathan read the full psalm for us at the beginning of our meeting this evening, where Jesus explains the meaning of a psalm in such a way as to describe who he is in the profoundest of ways. It's kind of the hub of the passage. And on the other side of that, we have two key observations that Jesus makes. Again, we see that Jesus knows so clearly the heart of a person, and he knows us better than we know ourselves. Whatever we may put on the outside, he knows what's going on inside. And those observations give us a severe warning and a rich commendation. Now, we're going to be drawn to this Lord Jesus tonight, I hope, all of us, whether we've known him for 50 years, whether we don't know him yet at all. We're going to be drawn to him to admire him, to love him, to follow him, and if we've never done so, to come to him, I pray. Now, this is the last week of Jesus' life on earth, And on the Friday, Jesus will die for our sins. And on this week, leading up to the crucifixion, Jesus' enemies are going to try and trap him. They're going to catch him, make him say something that they can then condemn him for. Last week, when we were thinking of the passage before, and Gareth was explaining that to us, we saw the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, they were a right a right mixed bunch. Pharisees, very fussily religious, Herodians, worldly. But they come to Jesus with this question about the coin. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And we read that when Jesus gave his answer, all around marveled at what he said. Such wisdom that could only come from the mouth of God. Now we have another question. Verses 18 to 27. The next question. This is a totally different sort of trap. The Sadducees, verse 18, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Now, these were the intellectuals of the nation, wealthy. Most of them were priests, intellectuals, highly regarded, definitely modernists, definitely liberals. They didn't believe in the existence of the soul. They didn't believe in resurrection, we've seen. They didn't believe in the last judgment. They didn't believe in the eternal state. They didn't believe in angels or demons. And make no mistake about it, and Jesus highlights this, denying the resurrection is a terminal error because when you do that, you deny judgment. There's no resurrection, and our destiny, my friends, is not death. It's resurrection to life or judgment, the fundamental mistake of human sin is to deny judgment. I'm not accountable. I can do what I like. I have no authority. I am my own master. There is no judgment. And these men have honed down the Bible. Now, the Jews had the 39 books of the Old Testament. Sadducees say, never mind all that, just the first five books are valid. 
And they took the parts of the Bible they want, like so many people today. It's a supermarket affair. Go down the shelves, you pick what you want, you put it in the basket. So many people run their religion and their attitude to the Bible like that. They just take the bits they want. Now, they come with this question, and it's the kind of question that we face. Because they invent a ridiculous scenario that is just about possible. They argue from what is a million to one chance, a scenario, and pour scorn on truth. They are decidedly hostile to the Lord Jesus. And they paint a picture of what would be an appalling situation in heaven or if the resurrection were true. And somebody said, ridicule is the devil's language. And they lampoon the idea of resurrection by making it look plain daft. Now, we get that today. We get people ridiculing and laughing at the Lord Jesus, and the best people at it are intellectuals. I mean, the Pythons were very good at that. You remember the film The Life of Brian? And that scene at the end with everybody hanging on a cross, and that song, Always Look on the Bright Side of Life, I've seen Christians laugh at that. That is damnably bad. Because he's mocking some of the, one of the most precious and profound things. Now, at the time when the film came out, they made the point, oh, no, we're not mocking Christ, we're not mocking Christianity. Not much they weren't. It's exactly the same kind of thing. Using ridicule, something they consider to be absolutely absurd, and attacking truth. And this is what the Sadducees are doing. In Deuteronomy 25, man died and his wife was childless, it was the responsibility of that man, uh, to, or rather that man's mother, to marry his brother's widow so that the family line could continue. Something called leveret marriage. You see that clearly in the book of Ruth. And here is this woman, and she gets married, and she actually gets through seven husbands. And on the last day, they say, so whose who's, who's wife is she then? Your teaching on resurrection is ridiculous. Now, our Lord's answer is profound, and he sees right through them. This is what he sees. Verse 24, are you not in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God? Now, at the beginning of the section and the end, he tells them they are seriously mistaken. He's pulling no punches with these intellectual, secular modernists. You are mistaken because you do not know the Scriptures nor the power of God. Regarding the power of God, Jesus effectively says, you don't understand that after the resurrection, everything is going to be different. There's going to be no marriage, no husband and wife, no sex, no procreation, no death. It's going to be a totally different thing. And in some incredible way, our relationships will be so different and so much better. And he sees that they do not understand the power of God in the resurrection. And they don't even know the Bible, and they don't even know their own precious first five books. They're ignorant of what their own scriptures teach, and Jesus takes them back to one of the most fundamental axiomatic passages in the Pentateuch. It's where God speaks to Moses out of the bush that is burning but not consumed. A clear picture of things going on eternally. And God speaks to Moses and he did not say, I was the God of Abraham, I was the God of Isaac, I was the God of Jacob, but I am the God of Abraham. 
which meant at, lo- at that moment, although he had been dead a long time, Abraham was still in existence. Although these men's bodies, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were rotting in the ground, they were alive. God was still their God, and they still had him as God. You are in serious error, Jesus says, because you don't know the power of God or the Scriptures. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, if ever I put a foot wrong, and if ever you put a foot wrong, as a Christian believer, it will be through one of these two things, either ignorance of the Bible or a failure to appreciate the power of God. If we go wrong, if we stray, it's because of one of those two reasons, either or both. Now, when the Bible has been absent, darkness has always come. The thousand years of European history, it's known as what? The Dark Ages. The Bible was by and large unknown. And the great triumph of the Reformation that we celebrate, the 500 anniversary this year when Luther banged those statements to the cathedral door in Wittenberg is that the Bible was rediscovered, preached, read, believed, loved and obeyed. And as well as believing the Bible and having that at our center of life and worship as Christians and as a church and we do, we know the power of God for this is a living word. This God is a living God and he is known to us. Jesus sees through their intellectual buffoonery, their ridicule, and he deals with them and he speaks to them very straightly. And we are reminded that we build everything on the power of God and the word of God. Now the next question is a little different. Because this guy, this scribe, and I'm going to refer to them as scribes because I prepared from another version and in the NIV they're called the teachers of the law. It's the same thing. This scribe is listening in. And Matthew tells us that this scribe is also a Pharisee. So he is one mighty religious heavyweight, this guy. And he comes to Jesus. In verse 28, one of the teachers of the law, one of the scribes came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus has given them a good answer, he asked him of all the commandments which is the most important. Now, these were religious lawyers, the scribes, who studied the text closely. And first and foremost, this guy wanted to know the top commandment of all. What is the greatest commandment? Now, it helps us to understand the context, because there are around 600-odd commandments, around 300-odd of what you should do and 300 of what you shouldn't do. And it was very confusing. And so he comes comes to Jesus with this question, Which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus answers. Look at verse verse 29. The most important one, he says, is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Notice commandment. So actually they... They sit as one. They are integral. You cannot have one without the other. You cannot love God without loving your neighbor. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Everything about you must vibrate with and be animated by the love you have for God. You can never love him too much. We must be filled with love for God at all times and in all ways. That's the thrust of that great commandment in Deuteronomy 4. And the second, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, not more, not less, 
get that love in its right measure. Love of self is used as a measure because we all have an endless supply of it. And so when we're measuring our love for others, that's the yardstick we use. And our love, and our love for others will always fall short. And the key to obeying this great command is to have a lower view of self. And Matthew tells us on these two commandments hang the whole of the law and the prophets. And the Lord is teaching this man, those listening in, and us today, that love is at the heart of everything to do with God. It's not a mushy emotion, though it must be emotional. It's a love that requires obedience and action. And coming out of what we were thinking about this morning, is your heart caught up with love for God and with your neighbor? Do you have compassion for the lost, for those around you? Do I? And if we love the Lord and keep his commands, it's not an intellectual thing, not purely an intellectual thing, our faith. We have to have passion in our love for God and for those around us. It's driven by what? It's driven by our will. We choose God. We choose to follow him. We choose to do good to those around us. We choose not to disobey the Bible. We choose not to say hurtful things. We choose to say loving things. We choose not to sing. Now that scribe was impressed by Jesus' answer. He's come to test the Lord, but the power of the answer has conquered him. The power of truth has invaded this man. See verses 32 to 34. He says, you're right, Lord. You're right, teacher, yes, this is more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus says to him, you are not far from the kingdom. You're not there yet, but you're not far. Now maybe you tonight are like this man. You've heard the claims of Christ. You've heard the preaching here, you're reading the Bible. And the light is beginning to dawn. And there are the first signs of spiritual life. You know something is stirring. Something's on the move. And what are those first signs of spiritual life? You no longer defend the party line. Now this scribe, when he said what he said, was stepping out. He was no longer sticking to the beliefs and the position he'd held so long with his cronies. You know when you're trying to dig out a tree root. And what you do is, we've done this many times, Ellen and I in our garden, you begin to wobble it. It's absolutely rock solid. So you dig it out and you start chopping away at the roots. And it begins to wobble. And begins to wobble more. And you lean on it and you lean on it. You chop a few more roots until the jolly thing comes out. Roots are being chopped The foundation you've had before is going. And we start facing the truth honestly and we decide that what we believe is going to be governed by the Bible, even if it's going to put us at odds with family and friends, it's going to cause us trouble because light is coming and we cannot ignore that life. This man will no longer defend the party line of the scribes and Pharisees because truth is convincing him he's not far from the kingdom but he's not yet in and sadly we're not told whether he ever got in but we hope and pray that he did. And we can read the Bible every day and we can sit under preaching and teaching. We can go to all the meetings and not yet be in. Isn't that the saddest state? 
There's an elderly gentleman in our family that loves steam railways. And uh, he'll go and he'll stand on the platform. He knows all of the locomotives, their numbers, when they were built, who made them and where. And uh, he thinks it's a wonderful thing to have heritage railways. But will he ever go on one? Will he ever actually buy a ticket to go on one? No, he won't spend the money. It's one of the most bizarrest things I've ever come across. It's love for steam engines, love for heritage railways, love to watch them, read about them. The knowledge is phenomenal, but he will not put his hand in his pocket to actually pay for a ticket to ride on something that he believes is brilliant. Now, there are people like that. There are people who believe that the Bible is true, that God is God, that Jesus died, but they don't actually get on the train you are not far from the kingdom. Light is dawning. We can go such a long way without actually being saved. And verse 34, people were so amazed, from then no one dared ask him any more questions. Such wisdom in his answers, such power, such insight, that they had to shut up. No more questions Silenced by the force of divine wisdom, and from now on to the end of the chapter, the Lord is taking the initiative. Then we come to that psalm that Nathan read to us from the beginning. And I ask you this question Have you thought about who Christ really is? In the context of what Jesus is doing here, he asks those around him this, this question to demonstrate who they are actually looking at and who they are actually talking to. Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? Now, when you first look at this, you think, you know, what does this mean? What he's doing, what Jesus is doing, is carrying on, exposing his opponents' ignorance of their very own scriptures. And Jesus' question is all to do with the meaning of the Bible. That's the best kind of question, isn't it, when people want to know what the Bible is saying. Lovely to hear what Nathan said about his mate at work, who is happy to read the Bible with him. That is brilliant. Greatest question when we ask what the Bible is teaching. And so Jesus takes Psalm 110, the first verse, and with the Jewish leaders in front of him, he asks them a question about the meaning of it. Verse 36, David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under my feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? Jesus asks, how can the Messiah be the son of David? Notice that Jesus mentions that David speaks in the power of the Holy Spirit, confirming to any Sadducees that might be around and anybody else that the whole of the Old Testament, that psalm that wasn't in the Sadducees' Bible, David was speaking by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament is the inspired word of God. And the psalm is about the Christ. And Jesus is not only teaching them and us that the Old Testament is the Spirit-inspired Word of God, but the Old Testament is full of Christ. It's all about Christ. And when we open our Old Testaments, there we see the Lord Jesus Christ, explicitly like in Isaiah chapter 53, that wonderful passage about the death of our Lord. Sometimes in pictures like the tabernacle or the manor or the rock. Sometimes by promise like the branch, the Lord our righteousness. Sometimes by prophecy about Bethlehem, about the shedding of blood, but 
no broken bones. Sometimes in person when the angel of the Lord comes, it's packed full of the Lord Jesus. All the way through the Old Testament. And the point of Jesus' question to the people around him is, okay, what do you, you religious leaders, believe? Now, they believe that the psalm was about the coming Messiah. That's fine. David's descendant. That would be fine to have David's descendants sitting on the throne again. be very convenient because that new king, be like David and usher in the new golden age, get rid of the Romans, but they could, as religious leaders and priests, control him. So that was fine. They believed that the Messiah would be David's son. Now then, says Jesus, I've got a question for you. When David talks about the Messiah in this psalm, when he talks about his son, he calls him Lord. How can the Messiah be David's son if he calls him Lord? Nobody calls their son Lord. Certainly not in the East, you didn't. Nobody calls their child, the one who has come from them, their superior, their senior. No one calls their son, the one they fathered, by a divine name. So how come when David talks about his son, he calls him Lord? Answer me that the scribes couldn't. And Jesus is pushing them and pushing them to think about who he is. Who is the Christ? And there's only one answer to that question, isn't there? That the Holy Spirit works in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He who is everlasting Son of God becomes the Son of Mary. Keeps his everlasting divine nature and adds a human nature. He loses nothing but becomes a man. He continues to be what he always was, the Lord of glory. But he becomes David's descendant born in the manger at Bethlehem. So he is David's Lord because he's Lord of creation, the Lord of glory, the creator of the world. But he becomes David's son because he takes human nature and is born like us. And the human and the divine brought together, remaining two distinct natures in all their integrity, but in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. One Christ, both David's Lord and David's Son. That's who he is. And if we're to be saved, we're told we have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, aren't we? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. When we believe, we believe on the Lord, the divine name. We believe on Jesus, his human name. You shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. And Christ, that's who he is, one person forever. And as he pushes the Jews to see this, we see then the enormity of their crime less than a week later, that they took the Lord of glory, this Christ, and crucified him. They didn't understand who he was, which is why Jesus prayed for them in the way that he did. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. They don't know who they're crucifying. This who is David's Lord and David's son. Now, that is the most important question that you and I can ever, ever answer. Who is the Lord Jesus? Absolutely essential that we understand that. What do you think of Jesus? And most people, if you talk to them, will recognize that Jesus existed and he was probably a, a reasonably good chap and a good teacher. And we live by his morals. Mahatma Gandhi believed that. He believed that the teaching of Jesus was valid, but he did not believe in him as Messiah or as Lord. There is a very famous quotation by C.S. Lewis, which is worth repeating. 
He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And the whole of Christianity will stand on this. The integrity of the person of Jesus Christ. Everlastingly God. Become man in two distinct natures. In one person forever and if he is not who he says he is we can forget him what we're doing tonight is a waste of time it's an act of complete foolishness to follow him but if he is the Lord Jesus Christ in the way that I've described in the way the word of God portrays him then surely it's the greatest foolishness to neglect him and ignore him and not bow before him and follow him So at the heart of our passage tonight is this question that Jesus puts to those teachers. Have you thought who Jesus Christ the Messiah really is? Now let's move on to verses 38 to 40. Now this Christ, this Lord Jesus Christ gives a warning. And we are face to face with this teacher in the temple who is our creator and the ruler of history. We're face to face with this teacher in the temple who is the judge at the end of time. And our eternal destiny is in his hands. And so whenever he speaks, we listen. And in verse 38, Jesus says, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. Now we need to weigh these words and not dismiss them as being something from that age with uh, those kinds of men just wearing these posh robes. And, uh, you know, this isn't relevant to us. It's a warning against pride. First here, the pride of the scribes, the pride of the teachers of the law. They wanted to be important. They wanted to be seen to be important. That was their great ambition, to be someone. Someone to be looked up to. And secretly, we may harbor that desire. Everything they did was engineered to produce that. They loved being greeted in the marketplaces. They they thrived on praise and being recognized. They had the best seats in the synagogue, the top table at any banquet. They loved it that way. They loved being noticed. But Jesus is saying, beware the pride of the scribes. Beware of thinking you are important. Important at all. It can be much subtler for us. At work at the moment, we have the Audi Wars. Now, forgive me, ladies, this is ladies. There's a number of ladies of a certain age who are buying Audis. And they seem to be competing with each other about, uh, you know, one has just bought a new Audi 3 uh, Cabriolet, one has bought a, a Q5, one has bought the new, the, the new Q2, which is actually a very nice car, I have to say. <laughs> and, and they are literally, and what is a car but clothes? 
It's the clothes we wear. You sit in a car, what does it make you feel? If you buy an Audi, the new Audi Q2 or a, a Q5 or the new Q... Oh, it makes you feel really good. And there is definitely this competition going on between a number of ladies in my office when they're buying their new Audis. Now, how they can afford it on local government pay, don't ask me. They've got to have rich husbands. But you see how subtle is the pride of the scribes. Even in the church, the office you hold, if you serve the Lord here, does it make you feel good? Do you want people to commend you for it and look up to you for it? The house we live in, it's a status symbol. Well, let's see these men in their real colors. Remember, this passage is about who Jesus is and what he sees. Verse 40, they devour widows' houses. And for a showmate, lengthy prayers, these men will be punished most severely. Now, have you watched hyenas devouring an antelope carcass? It is not a pretty sight. There's blood and guts and intestines. There's a frenetic, uh, almost blur of jaws as the thing is ripped apart. That is the word that Jesus uses for these men who are praying on widows' houses. Now, God had appointed the religious leaders amongst other things, to be the protectors of widows and orphans. That was part of their role. Those who had no natural means of support, no one to look after them, and no one on their side. And God had appointed those religious authorities to look after their interests and made, make sure everything went well with them. The children who had no fathers, no parents, that they were never downtrodden or neglected. These men devour widows' houses. And underneath their cloak of religion, what was it they loved? Money. And they're working the system in such a way that they'll be rich. And in the synagogue they pray these long and eloquent prayers. Oh, listen to scribe Hezekiah. Just so poetic. His use of words, the depth of his understanding of the scriptures. And as he is praying, he is working out how he can take that nice little house from widow Miriam and get three times the rent from a new tenant... And the Son of God says, I hate that kind of hypocrisy. I hate this outward show of religion which is not matched by spiritual character. I hate this double-mindedness where religion is just a mask. And the real you is something different. And then he says this, these men will be punished most severely. And this literally means they will receive a wealth of judgment to play on words and they're interested in wealth and standing and prestige. They're going to receive that in judgment. And it's a terrible thing to cultivate a godly image when you're really serving the world. And there is a hell for unbelievers. And the Bible teaches that there are depths of hell and some people have very little light and they sin against that light and they go to hell. Some people have a lot more light and they sin against that light and they go to hell. Some people, like these scribes, have an awful lot of light. And don't forget, they were full-time students of the Scriptures. They had everything that God had said in their hands at all times, but they are not shaped by those Scriptures. And their knowledge is no way. They're 100,000 miles from where they should be in terms of obeying those Scriptures. And the deepest hell is reserved for those with the greatest of privileges. The Lord is not mincing his words. You cannot fool Christ. 
And he sees the Sadducees for what they were, secular intellectual idiots who did not know the Bible or the power of God. He sees that one scribe who begins to get it and light dawns. We see the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, the Messiah, so wonderfully pictured in this psalm. The Lord sees the scribes for what they really were, foul, the very worst kind of sinner. To even devour widows' houses, and he warns them in the strongest terms imaginable, and us not to be like them. Finally, in the last couple of minutes, because our time has gone, just look at verses 41 to 44, the most famous part of the passage, actually, this. Jesus is in the temple, the part of the temple for all people who are Jews, and there are 13 great chests. Now, they don't have narrow slits in them for you to put your money in. They had like a sort of a trumpet. Remember when you used to cross the Dartford Tunnel, you used to throw your coins in and you used to, hopefully you got the right ones and the barrier would lift. And that was the treasury. And the rich come by, they throw their coins in. They make a great display. They love to give, or do they? Rather, they love to be noticed doing their giving, the pride of giving. The Lord Jesus Christ again sees, looks at these men and women. What does he see? He sees their bank accounts. Now he sees this poor widow, one of these ladies that the scribes have devoured. Now the crowd is told to notice the scribes, but here it's just the disciples the Lord calls to himself and says, look. And Jesus sees her bank account, or lack of it, And the widow, like the wealthy, had a choice about how much she should give. Now, she had two coins. She could have kept one. If she kept one, she could have bought herself a sparrow or maybe a small cake of bread and fed herself that day. But no, she gave both coins. Both went in. She understood that most searching of the Lord's commands that he'd outlined in Mark 8. For whoever wants to lose their life, save their life, will lose it. But whoever wants to, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? She gave her all to God's treasury and showed herself to be totally dependent upon him for her life. No one would have noticed that. No one would have noticed that. The disciples had to be pulled aside and Jesus had to say, look at her. The Lord noticed. The Lord saw. Others loved their wealth and they made a contribution. The widow made a total sacrifice. And that is the difference. And if we had more time, we could talk about that in relation to our own giving to God's work, but we don't. Others would only receive the wealth of judgment in the life to come, but this widow would enter into the riches of the Lord she so clearly was devoted to. They all gave out of their wealth, says Jesus, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything all she had to live on. The biggest gift that day was given by the widow. And we're constantly reminded, aren't we, in the New Testament of how much the Lord Jesus gave up for us. Paul says to the Corinthians, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might be rich. He gave everything so that we might receive every spiritual blessing. And when our giving reflects in some small way the total sacrifice of Christ for us, And we experience, as the widow did, the smile of the Son of God. 
So, do you know who he is, this Jesus that we've been reading about? Are you heeding his warnings about the pride of the scribes? Do you see things as he does? And as I said at the beginning, this passage is here for us to admire the Lord Jesus, to see that God has come amongst us, that no man spoke like he did. The all-wise God has spoken with human lips. It's here for us to follow Christ, to know his word, and to know his power, unlike those foolish Sadducees. It's here for us to love Christ with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and to have the compassion that Daph was talking about this morning for those around us. And the passage is here for us to come to Christ. How can we not come to him? Because we know that when Jesus says that true religion is loving God, we know we haven't done it. And true religion is loving others as ourselves, we know we haven't done it. But the gospel doesn't end here. It moves on to a point where the divine Son of God is crucified for our sins. And the punishment for our sins is laid on him. The gospel will end with a risen Christ. Risen from the dead, we shall see that we have a Savior who is alive. The resurrection is true, never mind the Sadducees. There is salvation from sin, eternal life, and an everlasting welcome for those who come to this Lord Jesus Christ.